You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys welcome to the choose fi radio podcast today we have an episode that i think is going to give some of you whiplash and it starts with me making an announcement that i am no longer 100 vtsax and i blame this on my co-host brad because as we started a business choose fi and we created our own 401k for whatever reason he decided to set up our accounts with schwab instead of with vanguard so up to this point, I can say that I am still like 99.999% in low-cost broad-based index funds, but Brad has taken this away from me so I can no longer say I'm 100% VTSAX. But the reason that's interesting is we're going to move even farther away from that today because we're going to be talking about the unique advantages of the individual investor. And I know that some of you are just like, what is going on? What show am I listening to right now? But this started because we got this incredible email from Brian Feroldi, who is a member of the FI community, a former personal finance blogger, and now a full-time writer at The Motley Fool. And this email we got from him literally blew my mind. And we knew even if we don't agree with him 100%, This goes back to the conversation that we had with Todd Trusseter, that level one versus level two understanding. And the one consistent thing about this show that we've created is that Brad and I are passionate about finding out everything that we don't know that we don't know. And the conversation is valuable. So I'm incredibly excited to have this conversation today. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Yeah, I just got thrown under the bus about the VTSAX, but I love it. I love it. Uh, but this should be a fun episode. So I met Brian a couple of years ago at FinCon and kept up via email. And yeah, he recently sent me this amazing email that Jonathan alluded to that that just blew me away in terms of the thoughtfulness about the advantages of the individual stock investing for someone in the FI community. I am not doctrinaire about anything. And I am always, always willing to hear new opinions and change my mind. And, and this was one of those emails that, that really made me perk up and say, all right, there's something here. We need to get Brian on and have him talk through this. So with that, Brian, welcome to choose a fine. Hey, Brad and Jonathan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Brian. I mean, this email that you wrote us, it convinced both of us almost immediately that there was a conversation that we needed to have. But I think before we jump into the email, I'd love to find out a little bit more about your story. How did you find the FI community? I mean, what has this path looked like for you personally? My career really started in uh, 2004. For some reason, I was just wired to always save. I remember being in high school and I would buy a candy bar every day at my, at my school lunch and I would bring it home and I would just like save them and I would have a big collection of candy bars. I have no idea why I did it, but I just always had that natural inclination to, to save and keep things. So when I actually had a career and started earning money, it was just within my nature to just save as much as I possibly could. Then my dad gave me a book when I was, again, just graduated from college, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure many people in the FI community are super familiar with it. And that was the first book that really introduced me to the idea of that you're in business for yourself and that you can become rich if you live in a certain way and the benefits of thinking and acting long term. And that book really started introducing me to other books. And I basically just became enamored with the idea, the topic of personal finance, saving and investing. So that was really my first introduction to the, to the FI community. Now, Back in 2004, it was much smaller than it is today, but I just always lived with the principles of save whatever you can, invest as much as possible, pay down debt, and that will lead to good things. Always think with the, uh, the long term in mind. So my career, I started out in uh, happenstance, started out in the medical device industry. I found a great sales job in the medical device industry and did very well. 
My wife is a uh, professional physical therapist, so we had two good incomes coming in, uh, and we, we had no kids, so we were literally able to save 50, 60% of our income on a pretty regular basis. Fast forward over time, and I read a book by The Motley Fool called The Fool's Investment Guide. That book really resonated with me and opened my eyes to the advantages of buying uh, individual stocks, and I got involved with their community over time and just became very, very passionate about thinking about investing and investing with the long term in mind. And then about two years ago, I left my job in the medical device field to become a full-time writer for The Motley Fool. So that's how I earn a living now. My wife and I now have uh, three small kids. We've done uh, extremely well with our investments since we started saving 50% of our income for, for the last decade. I'm curious, how has your investing strategy changed? So you started reading these books back in 2004. From the sound of it, you've been saving 50 plus percent of your income for, yeah, like you said, 10 to maybe 14 years at this point. How has your investing strategy changed? What did it look like when you first started putting money away? Like, were you putting into a 401k? Was it taxable savings? Do you have real estate investment? You know, like, give us give us a flavor of your investing life. I like to say that I made every possible mistake that you could possibly make with investing. When I first started out, I was interested in, I was like super attracted to penny stocks, which are just absolutely garbage stocks that always have some little story built into them. But that's what I thought you did to, to make money. I figured if you buy a stock that's under, you know, for like 50 cents a share and it just goes up to a dollar per share, you double your money very quickly. Thankfully, I lost a lot of money very quickly by buying these absolutely horrible investments. And then as I read more, I soon learned about, uh, began to learn about dividends. And then I learned about index funds. And I've put uh, a lot of my money into index funds. And even to this day, the vast majority of my retirement funds, if not all of them, are, are in index funds. So I don't want to, I want to stress that up front. I am an enormous fan of index funds and own them personally. I've always kept my retirement funds in uh, index funds, but with any extra money that I have, I have funded a, uh, an individual stock portfolio, and I've used that to buy and sell individual stocks for the last decade, and I've done extremely well by buying and selling individual securities, so I've become a, a huge fan for individual investors who have the time and inclination to take the step beyond index funds and buy and research their own individual stocks because I think they can do extraordinarily well over time. So it sounds like you're not making the case to replace one with the other, abandon index fund investing and just be a stock picker, but you're saying you supplement or you don't just stop with index investing. You take a piece of your portfolio and you make the choice to, to do it on your own. Absolutely. And I want to stress that for all the Bogleheads that are listening and the people in the FI community that I just know are diehard index fans. I love index funds. I recommend them to all of my family and friends that I know have no interest in finances at all. I'm a huge fan of them. However, I'm also a firm believer that people that like to go one step further and that people that do have an interest in business, in money, can learn how to pick individual stocks and build their own portfolio, and they can exceed the returns of the index investor. Okay. The reason that I knew we had to have you on the show was basically a single line in your email, which while I'm not going to read word for word, I want to set it up by saying the common theme that I am myself espouse and what I see on our Facebook group, which is that if all the Wall Street brokers, all the traders, all the people that are spending thousands and thousands of hours and are handling these actively managed funds can't beat the index, what possible chance do you have? This line in your email stood out to me because it's the complete counterpoint. And it says, the professional money managers are at a huge disadvantage when compared to the individual investor. How do both of those fit inside the same universe? That's why we had to have this conversation today. It doesn't make sense, does it? How can these people that have millions of dollars of research, that have access to management, that have the fastest computers, how could they possibly be at a disadvantage to people that sit at home and have only you know, a couple thousand dollars and an internet connection? How could individual investors possibly compete? That's what I thought, but when I really dug into it and I really learned more about the money management business, 
you actually find out that professional money managers have several factors that make it almost impossible for them to beat the market over time. And all of those factors that hold back professional money managers do not apply to individual investors. So that's the biggest reason that individual investors can do better than the professionals is because they do not operate under the same constraints that professional money managers do. Yeah. And it's interesting because whenever we refer to the Jonathan's quote there, how could we possibly expect to do better if these professionals can, but it's not apples to apples is what you're saying there. The professionals operate under different constraints, different incentives, different fee structures that an individual investor who was trying to invest in single stocks wouldn't operate under. That's the biggest thing I took away from your email. And I'd love for you to tell the audience, obviously. Yeah. Individual investors have essentially one big advantage over professionals, but that advantage is so important and so powerful that it takes away every advantage that you would think a professional money manager has and just blows it over. And the core of the difference, the the key advantage that individual investors have that professionals do not is this. Professional money managers need to think and act with the short term in mind and, and individual investors can think and act with the long term in mind. The difference between those two seems small, seems subtle, but over time it can create enormous differences and enormous advantages for individuals. So Brian, this is the meat, right? This is where we wanted to land with this conversation because I think it adds a depth to, honestly, even someone that listens to this conversation that decides not to be an individual investor, but decides why are my index funds so powerful, the topics that we're gonna discuss next basically lay the groundwork for that. But it's so much more than that. This is a framework shifting conversation and, and I'm excited to, to dive into it. Can we take a few minutes and talk about these disadvantages that the managers are under? Well, if you're a big fan of index funds, I think one of the, the big arguments that you have in favor of index funds is that they are extremely low cost. So the everyone's favorite index funds cost, what, five basis points, which is 0.5% per year or 0.1% or per year, compare that to a professional money manager often charges 1% per year or even more than that. And in the case of some hedge funds, they literally charge 2% per year plus 20% of any gains that are realized on their stocks. So just the fact that they have these enormous fees that they are collecting from the individual from the from their investors that acts as a big drag on the returns that their investors get so by contrast individual investors do not have any fees at all to pay when you buy and sell your own securities so that alone is a big plus in the favor of index investing and investing as an individual and it also strikes me that their incentives are not aligned like when you have a professional money manager their incentive is not necessarily to make you money Absolutely. And, and this is uh, one of my favorite financial writers is Morgan Housel. And I recently read this point that he came up with online. He said, money management is a lot like politics. Money managers spend the majority of their time raising funds and building assets, not working for their investors. So when you think about how a manager, a money manager makes more money, the answer isn't necessarily what you would think. You would think the higher their returns, the more money they would make. That's true to a some sense because the higher their returns, the bigger their assets grow and the more money they extract. But what's more important for a money manager, what's job number one is raising funds. If you have a $100 million fund versus a billion dollar fund, that billion dollar fund literally earns 10 times the fees as that $100 million fund. So money managers are in the asset under management business. They're not in the investing business. Yeah, that strikes me, just like I say fairly often here on the podcast, life is often about incentives. And what are the incentives here? As you're saying, it's to get a larger fund and it's also to stay in business. And it's also to stay in your job. And that's another instance like politics. And that's actually where I thought you were going with that is, they raise money constantly just to keep their job and keep it going for perpetuity, essentially, right, for, uh, for decades in office. And that is another one of your points is career risk. 
are they necessarily making the right decisions or are they just making decisions to keep their job and to also raise more funds for for their mutual fund or whatever investment they're running? Yeah, as long as you start with that mindset of a professional money manager's job, their actual job is to raise funds and to keep the funds that they have. Those two factors are what lines their pockets. So that is what they are focused on because that's how they make money. And those factors prevent them from thinking and acting in the long term because if they if they do something that they believe is in the long-term interest of their fund, but then their shareholders call them and say, why did you do that? I'm taking my money out. Then that fund manager is punished because the, the funds flow out from their fund and they do not make as much money. So they are extremely focused, extremely focused on what's happening in the market this week, this month, this quarter. Because that's where their investors are thinking of. That's what they are focused on. They are focused on, can you beat the market this week, this month, this quarter? If the answer is no, they lose money. They, people withdraw funds. If the answer is yes, they get more money. And there's also the fact of how they beat the market, how they invest their money. You can imagine if you're the, a fund manager that has a billion dollars under management, you are probably going to focus your investing on the big, well-known companies, the IBMs, the Apples, the Microsofts, because those are big, safe, well-understood investments. If you invested a lot of your fund in small companies that you thought were great for the long term, but they underperformed, your investors might look at you and say, what were you thinking buying this company? So there was is an old adage on, on Wall Street, Nobody ever gets fired for buying IBM. So again, this is a big career risk thing that they're trying to avoid. They have to stick with the big, well-known companies so that they can justify their investments to their investors. And that also is a huge disadvantage that they face. I'd love to get your thoughts on just the size of the company as well. You know, it's one thing when you have an individual investor that's investing 10, 20, 30, $50,000. It's another thing when you're talking about moving millions and potentially billions of dollars around the market. That's a point that Warren Buffett has talked about for several decades now. You know, Berkshire Hathaway has gotten so big and they have so much money that Buffett himself has said the number of investments that he, his investment pool, his investable universe shrinks over time as he gets so big. And let's pretend that Buffett really liked a company that was the whole company was worth like $500 million. If Buffett wanted to take a meaningful position in that company, he would be buying so much with so much money that the stock would literally jump. It would just go, it would just go parabolic because of his buying power. The same things happens as funds get bigger. Their investable universe shrinks the more money they get. So even if they find opportunities that are, are smaller, that they think are just fantastic for the long term, in a lot of cases, they actually cannot buy them because it wouldn't have a big impact on the overall portfolio. They're just simply managing too much money. Individual investors, like you said, Jonathan, that are investing, say, 50, 100,000, 200,000, they can absolutely buy positions in small companies and have absolutely no impact on the, on the prices of the securities at all. Brian, this is fascinating. And while I love spending time on, on why professionals fail, and I think that's important, I, I'd, I'd love to spend a lot of time on how individuals can succeed with this type of investing. But I think you had a, a couple of other instances like professionals are forced to buy and forced to sell depending on certain, certain situations, whereas an individual investor would not have those same limitations. Yeah, I mean, think about if you're a fund manager and you just beat the market over the last 90 days or six months or something, what's gonna happen to your assets? Well, the answer, unfortunately, is that they're going to grow. People are gonna see that you're outperforming and they are going to give you money, thinking that they, they can get in on your secret strategy if they give you funds. Well, if that fund manager gets money, if their asset base balloons, then in order to stay, remain invested in their favorite ideas, they have to buy those ideas. They have, to, they have to invest that new capital in those stocks. And when you're in investing, if a stock is at 40, you might like it a lot. But if that same stock a week later is at 60, 
you might not like it nearly as much. But in many cases, those big fund managers are forced to buy with their funds that are coming in at highs. And the exact opposite can happen if they get the call saying, we want our money back. If a stock that they love has fallen and they still love it and they think it's a great buy, but they get a call from a client saying, we are pulling our money, a lot of times those managers have to are forced to sell their favorite ideas at prices they know are terrible just because their clients are demanding redemptions. So those factors also limit what they can do. Now, I think there's a large percentage of our audience that is standing up cheering that this is validation for all the reasons that the individual investor should just stick with index funds. And I think I agree up to this point, but you don't have to stop there. You're making the case today that the individual investor gets all of the benefits and none of these negatives. And you've kind of slowly developed a system that you've modeled on the groundwork that other people have laid. And I'd love to hear you share it. I totally agree with you. And again, I want, I want to stress up front, if people are big fans of index funds, they're in good company. I am a huge fan of index funds and I am a big proponent of them. But I think that if you take the time to understand business and you study how the markets work, you can buy individual stocks and you can outperform the index over time as long as you develop the right framework for picking stocks. And most importantly of all, you have to think and act with the long-term in mind. If you focus on the short term and you focus on the charts and things that Wall Street cares deeply about, you will lose. But if you can take a three or five or a 10 year view on owning companies, I'm very confident that people with a modest amount of time and and a high interest can beat the market over time. So Brian, we often take a little bit of flack here for being so pro index funds, but I think what you're setting up is this third option. So I feel very comfortable intellectually saying if we were just comparing the two options, which is the index funds with ultra low expenses or professional money managers with all the limitations that you described and high expenses, that index funds are in all likelihood a better option. But what you're saying is there's this third option and potentially people in the FI community who already have a built-in long-term bias that they can succeed even more spectacularly than than many, right? Is, is that what you're alluding to, that, that people in the FI community are uniquely suited for this? Absolutely. And you do have to have a certain amount of interest in the topic. If you just have no interest in this topic, I, I always say, go with index funds. There are just so many advantages that they're wonderful. But I know that the people that listen to this podcast are much more focused on money, clearly have um, the interest and the time to devote to thinking about how they can do better than the average person. So I think that this audience in particular, if they follow some good principles, can outperform the, the, the index. So Brian, okay, principles. Obviously, I want to hear your principles. But how much of a time commitment is this going to be? Like, I think that's what a lot of people also get hung up on, which is, okay, the index is matching the market. The expenses, like you said, you know, four or five basis points, essentially negligible. And that's easy. They don't need to outthink it. They don't need to spend hours worrying about whether the market's going up or going down. And and you might say you don't do that anyway, since you have a long-term bias. But what kind of time commitment is this for the average person who's listening to Choose FI, who just got into the FI community in the last handful of months? This probably seems a little daunting. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I can tell you that this is a, a passion for me personally. So I could just talk about this stuff all day. I realize that I'm way out there in terms of interest in this. But I would say with a couple hours, a couple hours per month, that you can absolutely build a portfolio that you're very happy with. And I don't think, Brad, that you have to do one or the other. I don't think it's indexing or individual stock selection. And if somebody only has, say, an hour of time per month to th- that they're willing to devote to this, a great strategy can be put 90, 95% of your funds into index funds. And with that one hour that you have that you can research a company that you think is good, put 1% of your portfolio in that just as a way to see how it does and, and to keep you interested. So you said building a portfolio from a newbie to this investing philosophy, which I would certainly rank among, among those. What does this look like on a meaningful basis? How many companies do I have to buy to make this 
diversified enough. How do I even get into this? What would be my first step in researching a company and pulling the trigger in some meaningful way? And like, do you do it? Hey, I research one company, this is a buy or not, and then I move on? Or do you buy multiple stocks at once? Like, I know these are really rudimentary questions, but like, this is the kind of stuff that, that I'm curious about. Sure. I don't think any one strategy fits everybody. You know, as I mentioned, I'm a, I, I work for The Motley Fool. That We have thousands and thousands of, of members that are part of it. And if you ask that question to each of them, they would all come up with their own answer and their own strategies and their own, you know, how they do things. So I don't think there's any one right answer. I can tell you that in general, in order to be diversified, uh, you probably want to own more than 15 stocks, 20 stocks, something like that. At the same time, you don't want to buy so many that you can't keep track of them. It's really about finding a balancing number. I can tell you that I personally own about 80 individual stocks. I think that that's a manageable amount for me because of the work that I do and how I'm just regularly exposed to them. But that might seem like a completely overwhelming number for a lot of people that are just starting out. If you have an interest in this, but you're just getting started, again, keep the vast majority of your funds in index funds and then add two, three, four, five with a tiny, tiny portion of your portfolio just so you can start to develop a process, just so you can see how that goes. Index funds are a great backstop, so you can really pick and choose as you see fit. Brian, you use the term in there, keep track of. I'm curious what that looks like in a reasonable manner. So like, is a lot of the decision, the purchasing decision. So like in your email, and, and I want to hear about your guidelines, certainly, but by companies that have an advantage over competitors and Warren Buffett calls this a moat. And I assume if you're following Buffett, you're, you're buying them at a, a price that you believe is a value. And we can talk about that later. But how much of the decision is the purchasing decision and how much of it is ongoing like you said, you know, keeping up with these stocks, like what does that look like on a, on a month to month basis? Sure. I mean, you can devote as much or as little time to it as you want. Publicly traded companies are required by law to report their earnings to investors every 90 days. One real simple thing you can do is check in on them every 90 days. Just really quickly read over their press release. They're going to show you how much revenue they made, uh, what their profit or losses was, how, what their, uh, how much money they have in their bank account, how much debt they have, any big actions that they've taken. I can tell you my personal strategy is I put a tremendous amount of time in upfront to identifying and sorting to find the greatest companies that I possibly can. And if you are reasonably confident that you've found a great company, I just like to buy it and hold it and possibly buy more over time. But I do track the company's progress looking specifically at the business results, their revenue, their profits, their balance sheet, not their stock price. What would you look for in that 90-day release that would make your ears perk up and say, okay, maybe something has changed here? I know you gave a couple of items of, of general terms, but like, what would rise to the level of okay, I've already done a ton of research on this. Most of it is in the buying decision, but this one thing happened. Can you just give us a couple examples? Obviously, I know there are hundreds of different things I assume that could happen, but just give a couple examples. So like someone like me who wants to get into this, what am I looking for? Sure. So one very, very useful thing that some great investors do is they keep an investing journal. Whenever you are going to buy a stock, what you want to do is write down, keep a journal and say, I am buying this stock because I think it has a great manager. I think its runway for growth is enormous. I, I like its management team. I think it has this competitive advantage over its rivals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then as you see the actual results come in, you can check them against the reasons that you bought the stock in the first place. If you said this company is going to take market share because it has a better product, but over time you see that their revenue is falling, clearly your original investing thesis might be wrong. On the flip side, if they come out with a new product and are growing faster than you initially thought, you might think this company is doing better. So I, I always just check for is the reasons that I bought this company in the first place, are those still active? 
There's no one thing that you can look at in a financial report that can say yes or no, but you can absolutely get a sense if you just track the financials over a period of time. You know, I think I get stuck on the idea of the stock going to zero. You know, I'm just wondering, like with the index fund, I can say with virtual 100% confidence that, you know, unless a black swan totally happens, VTSAX will never go to zero. And if it does, you've got bigger problems. You know, that's just kind of like a, it's a known entity, what that would mean. But 2007, 2008, you know, you say, wow, AIG, great company. Lehman Brothers, wow, great company. I mean, what are the message boards? What are the communities saying about these things? And if you decide that looks like a, you know, a, a really wonderful business model, one of these 15 stocks does just completely go to zero. I'm not even talking about just keeping up with an index or not matching the index, but I mean, with individual stocks, it truly can disappear, right? In extremely rare cases, yes. You, you could have bought an, an Enron. You could have bought an, a Lehman. But those companies in particular, one of the big maxims that we follow is something that Buffett himself follows. And he basically says, don't buy anything that you do not understand. And I don't care what kind of investor you are. If you looked, really looked at Lehman Brothers and you really tried to understand what they do, I'm very confident you would be scratching your head to say, how does this company make money? And there's no reason that you absolutely have to buy that. Compare that to a company that I'm sure everybody listening to this can understand. Something like Boston Beer. They make Sam Adams. Everybody listening knows what Sam Adams is and they can understand the business model. They brew beer, they sell it. That is a much, much, much easier company to understand than a, than a Lehman Brothers or an AIG. So it's really important to focus your time to understand how the company makes money and what the potential risks are. So that way you can keep the AIGs and Lehman Brothers and Enron from entering your portfolio. My follow-up question on that would be getting involved in a community. Because to be honest, when you talk about looking at bank statements and how much money a company has in the bank account and what their management team is doing, that would be Greek to me. I would have no idea how to read a prospectus. It just It's just totally over my head. How does someone that identifies with what I just said, start to tackle something like this? Well, I can tell you how I learned, and I do not want this to be an advertisement for The Motley Fool, but I will say I've been a paying subscriber to The Motley Fool for years, and they have a number of newsletters where they do all of that research for you, and they present everything to you in a buy report. Every month, they come out with a couple of stock picks and say, we like this company, here's why, they give you the thesis, they give you everything that you could possibly know, then you can take that information and you can choose to, to buy it or not. So I'm a huge fan of outsourcing a lot of that initial work to The Motley Fool, and I, I rely on them for the majority of my stock ideas. And one of the things that they really excel at is teaching you, importantly, over time, how to read a financial statement, what to look for in competitive advantages. But if you're not into that, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of wonderful books out there that you can just pick up and, and just peruse. One of them that I'll, I'll quickly call out that I found extremely useful was Warren Buffett and the Interpretation of Financial Statements. Page by page, they just walk through the three financial statements that all companies are required by law to report, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. And they tell you exactly how Warren Buffett looks and thinks about each of those numbers. So that is a, that's a book that I just can't uh, recommend highly enough. And yeah, I just wanted to be really clear when you said before, like, this is not an advertisement for The Motley Fool. You're not here in an official capacity for The Motley Fool at all. You just wrote us an email. You're a member of our community. So just you know, want to make that perfectly clear. But it sounds kind of like fun, this whole just researching companies. And I think in your email you wrote, learn more about the business world, can make you a better employee and or more marketable in career. That stuck out to me like, okay, what's the worst that happens? I look into this. And, and again, like we do get a little bit of flack for just being so pro index fund. And really that's, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, like that's a brainless way of looking at it. And that's how I invest. So I don't mean that as a negative at all, but like maybe learning 
is not such a bad thing, right? We're constantly talking about that here on Choose If I is like, you want to get as much information as you can. You want to keep your eyes and your mind open to the world. So I don't see that as a negative at all, is reading a book like that, perusing Molly Fool or any of the hundreds of, of investing sites. And, and I'm sure there are other reputable ones that you might recommend, but that's not a negative to me at all. And also one of the things that stuck out to me was when you said teaching your kids about money and using this as an illustration, you know, in a way to engage them about investing in their future. I, I really, that really appealed to me. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent, obviously, of financial education. And I can tell you that my seven-year-old, just a couple of weeks ago, we bought his first stock and I gave him a number of choices based on companies that I thought that he would have an interest in. And he chose Electronic Arts because they make Madden football. So <laughs> I do understand we out- <laughs> that business model. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we went out and we purchased shares. They reported earnings and I just quickly took him through them and said, look, Look, my son's name is Tyler. I said, Tyler, look, this is how much sales they did. This is the video games that they have coming out. This is how much profit they made. And he was really interested because the stock went up uh, like uh, $10 in, in a single day. So I was like, you are now $10 richer than you were yesterday just because of, of this report. So he now comes home and checks EA's stock price every day to see what it does. I'm drilling into him that that doesn't matter. It's all about the long term, but he is definitely engaged with with the process. And I don't think I could possibly have done that if I just told them, hey, you own one share of an index fund now. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me in this email is you basically sent us a chart tracking the total stock market, the S&P 500, and then what your own strategy had done. And I can see that since 2013, when you started tracking this, you have consistently beaten it. I was very impressed that the cumulative returns on the S&P 500 were approaching 125% from 2013 to October 2017. But it looked to me like your cumulative returns approached 155%. Is that right? Uh, yeah, about there. I, I, unfortunately, I switched brokers back in 2013, so I didn't have the ability to go further back. But yeah, I can tell you that my individual returns have definitely outpaced the index. So I'm, I'm at least walking proof that it can be done. I know for a absolute fact that there are, I, I know lots and lots of investors through the Motley Fool that have very similar experience. So Brian, in that period, you said you've owned about 80 stocks and you also say in this email that, that your turnover has been very low. So it seems like you make these decisions and, and you're not changing dramatically over time. But like, how do you decide to add to a position? I'm curious about that. Like if you're not, you said you're not overtly tracking and making decisions based on stock price, you are saving 50 plus percent of your income or or thereabouts. What does it look like on a month to month basis for your investing? Like how do you spread those funds across these 80 stocks? What does the actual nitty gritty purchasing decisions look like? Sure. So I maintain a big database of stocks that that interest me. I rank them by how interested I am in owning them over the next one, three, five, ten years. Basically, if I'm extremely interested in owning a stock for 10 years, it goes to the top of the list. If I have no interest or I think it's a bad business, it goes to the bottom of the list. Then I just really simply do some very quick valuation work to say, if this stock traded below this price, I would be interested in owning it. If it's above it, I'm not as interested, but if it's very far below it, I'm very interested. And then every month I add funds to my brokerage account just automatically. And then every month I just pick my, say five, three or five favorites that are trading at, that are a great I think are a great long-term holding and they're trading at an attractive price and I just buy those stocks. I do the same thing the next month, the next month, and the next month and buy them with the intention of holding them for as long as possible. How do you make the decision to sell? That's a wonderful question that there is no good answers to. Sometimes you sell because the thesis is broken. So you bought a stock because you thought it was going to grow and do great And it turns out that you were just dead wrong. Their product was terrible. Their CEO got fired. Something got wrong. And you sell that company often at a loss. But I'm happy to do that if I can then use those funds to buy something that I'm far more interested in. Other times, 
if you buy a great company, it can get bought out by another great company. Just last year, I was uh, an investor in Whole Foods, and then lo and behold, Amazon came and bought out the entire company. So I was forced to sell my position in Whole Foods because they were getting bought by Amazon. Other times, you could just think that um, the business prospects are not as rosy as the market is assuming, and you think there's a better place for your money elsewhere. So there's nothing wrong with selling a stock that you think is, is not going to do as well over the next three to five years as another one. But in general, I like to buy and hold with the idea and the intention of holding it and letting it compound for me for as long as possible. So I mentioned your cumulative returns kind of as a proof of concept, but I'm curious, do all of your picks have to be winners in order to hit that cumulative return? Yeah, so this is one of the most eye-opening things that I think it's important for everyone to realize. And this is something that a lot of index investors might not realize. JP Morgan did this wonderful study a couple years ago where they looked at the 30-year returns of, uh, I think it was the Russell 3000, which is like 3,000 companies. And they measured and tracked their progress over those 30 years. And one of the most eye-opening things from this study was that two out of every three stocks in that index underperformed the market. And even more shockingly, about 7% of the companies in that index accounted for almost all of the gains of the index over that period. So when I learned that, it really interested me because it tells you that as an index investor, when you buy the index, by design, about half the companies, more than half of the companies that you own are going to do terribly. However, the third of companies that do well more than offset all of the losses of those two thirds. I guess my initial thought is the opposite of this, which is, okay, 7% of these stocks make up most of the gains. Like, how am I going to be smart enough, lucky enough, whatever it may be, not succumbing to biases to invest in these ultra winners in my stock portfolio of 15 or 20 stocks or even up to 80 like yours? That is a very real risk that you face when you do buy individual stocks. However, I think that if you do follow a framework to identify great businesses, you can ensure that you get at least a handful of those great, great companies in your portfolio. And I brought those statistics to really give people a framework to think about when they're investing. If you buy 10 stocks and you matched the market, by design, six of those stocks would not do well. Three of those stocks would do pretty good, and probably one of those stocks would do excellent. So you need to be able to adopt that mindset before you start investing, and you need to have those odds in mind that it's okay if half of your stocks do not do well. That's a really hard concept for people to understand, but your goal when you're investing and buying individual stocks to beat the market with about four or five of them and to have a home run one out of every 10. If you can do that, you can beat the index over time. Is there any chance you could give us like a real life example of how maybe Wall Street would take the short term view on something, whereas an individual investor might have some of the advantages we talked about and make a different choice? I can give you dozens of examples, but one semi-recent one that comes to mind was a company called Priceline Group. Now, people listening probably know them for they own Priceline.com, you know, the William Shatner ads. My initial thought when I heard of this company was, who cares about Priceline? There's Expedia, there's TravelZoo, there's a bazillion places to book online. How can this company make money and do well? I don't understand its competitive advantage. However, when you dug into the details you actually learn that the Priceline Group owns a number of travel portals uh, like Priceline.com, Booking.com, Rental Cars, Agoda. Uh, they own OpenTable. They own several different platforms. And they really benefited from the gradual shift of people from stop using travel agents and booking their own travel online. So Priceline Group actually owns all of these very popular sites. So their revenue and their profits have grown exponentially over the years have people have stopped to use 
travel agents. So those factors really made me think the Priceline Group is an excellent business. I think people are going to continue to book their travel online. I just think this company has a great future. But in 2010, a volcano erupted in Iceland. I don't know if you guys remember that, that happening, but Wall Street was freaking out that the Priceline Group's business was going to be really affected at that time because the whole travel scene in Europe, which is where they had a really strong foothold, was going to be disrupted that summer. So shares fell from like $250 to something like $180 or $170. And that was a great example of Wall Street thinking extremely short term. But I really liked the company. I really thought that the next 10 years were going to be wonderful for this business. So I purchased shares when they were trading on sale back in 2010. And the stock is currently about $1,800. So I've, I've earned a, about a 10-bagger, 10x my money, just from buying when Wall Street was panicking about an issue that really did not affect the company the long term at all. Because Wall Street had to report that on a quarterly holdings, correct? Correct. So Wall Street was very concerned that that volcano was going to impact the company's revenue and profits the next quarter, the next couple of weeks. The business wasn't going to be making as money right now as we thought. But of course, what does a volcano have to do with this business over the next five or 10 years? And what does it have to do with people shifting their travel habits from travel agents to online? The answer is nothing. So that was a wonderful, that's just a wonderful example to me of Wall Street taking the short-term view and an individual investor that can take the long-term view could have really benefited. I think these examples are valuable. I'd love it if you had another one that you could share with us. Sure. Uh, one of my biggest winners is uh, a company that I'm sure everyone listening is a big fan of, uh, Netflix. This was a, a rocket ship stock. It was doing so well. They were a pioneer in streaming, but in 2011, they made this decision to split their company in two. Do you, do you guys remember the term quickster? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say it. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So they decided that they were going to stop offering streaming for free, and they were going to split their business into a streaming business and a DVD-by-mail business called Quickster. And people were freaking out about they're raising prices 60%, and they're really doing – what are they doing to their customers – and the number of subscribers to their service was basically flat that quarter because they shot themselves in the foot. And the stock fell about 75% from the top to the bottom, which is obviously a gut-wrenching kind of temporary loss to have to stomach. But if you were a believer that streaming was going to grow in importance and that Netflix in particular, their strategy of investing in their original content was going to grow, and you had the gusto to buy when Wall Street was incredibly focused on the short-term subscriber numbers, that was a wonderful buying opportunity for investors. I did buy a little bit when it did fell, and that has since returned 40x my money in the, uh, what, seven years later? Well, and just to be clear, so the stock price dropped 75%, but it wasn't like their subscribers dropped 75%. You're saying the subscribers were just flat that quarter, so they didn't really go up or down. So it's not like a catastrophe if you believed in it long-term. Absolutely. The stock price typically acts much bigger than a company business, a business does. So I believe that quarter Netflix was down slightly in subscribers. It was like the first time their subscriber base went down or was flat or Basically, it, it came nowhere close to meeting Wall Street's expectations that quarter. So when that happens, stocks typically get, get absolutely crushed in the short term. But if you still believed in the long-term potential of the business and you could take the long-term view, it proved to be a tremendous buying opportunity. Brian, thank you for taking the time to put this together. I mean, this, you really brought it home. I mean, you sealed the deal for me personally. I get it. I don't know at this point whether or not I'm going to have the bandwidth to take action on this personally, at least at this particular point in time. But the interest is there now where it was. I, I never even considered it before reading your email. To me, it goes to this point that Brad highlighted so well earlier. In our community, it has been active management was option A and index offerings, index investing was option B. And in my mind, that it has been clearly cemented that index investing is superior. And frankly, 
it's superior for all the reasons that we mentioned for the first half of this show. But what you've highlighted for me and what I've known is going on in the background is that there is a third possible option that certain people have latched onto and figured something out. And it's not that it's necessary. It's not that everybody has to do it or even consider this. But if you do have the bandwidth in your life and you want to put your time into a hobby, there is additional returns to be made and it is possible. And it's a completely different framework and it doesn't discard anything that we've talked about earlier but it adds that second level understanding onto it. And I think I can't imagine anybody doing a better job than what you did with this particular episode, really taking someone like myself that is dogmatic on index funds and saying, hey, there might be a third option. So I would love to one, just give you back the floor for any final thoughts on this and maybe get any actionable takeaways that you, that you might want to give to our audience that's interested in more information. Sure. There are a ton of wonderful resources online. I obviously learned everything that I know basically from reading books on investing and also through interacting with The Motley Fool. If somebody has an interest, I I would point them to The Motley Fool's podcasts. Motley Fool has five podcasts that discuss all facets of either personal finance or individual investing. For people that want to go in a deep dive into certain sectors, there's a great podcast called uh, Industry Focus that talks about a different sector of the market, and they really dig deep into how those sectors work and and how to invest in those sectors. So there's a plethora of of free resources that can easily be accessed by people just by clicking around on the internet. And any like short takeaways on like summarizing what we talked about, what would be like the one, two, three, four, five steps that someone should consider when really getting into this? Sure. So if I could go back in time and tell myself something 10 years ago, I would say this, start your search for looking for great companies. And by great companies, I mean, they have great economics. They have a strong brand. They have a founder-led management team that has high inside ownership. They have lots of room for growth. They have clear competitive advantages over their rivals. And this one might shock some people, but I found out through investing that when a stock does well over time, that's a great indicator that it's going to continue doing well. One One of the key things I've learned is that winners tend to keep on winning. So don't fear buying stocks just because they're up a lot. That's often a great sign as opposed to a bad one. All right. Well, normally that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we'd like to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Brian, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. I read a ton of blogs, but if I had to give a shout out to one that the FIRE community might not be that familiar with, I would say there's a writer named Morgan Housel. He writes a blog at the Collaborative Fund that is just fantastic. All right. uh, Question number two, your favorite article of all time. This can be one that you wrote or one from somebody else. If I had to choose one, it would be Mr. Money Mustache, zero to hero in one post. I think that is just such a piece of art that summarizes everything that you should do to live a better life. And what I love about this is the threads. You know, I think what I keep seeing is that the FI community gets a little bit bigger. It encompasses a few more strategies to hit financial independence. You know, there is, we, we say it and it's become our new tagline and I love it. You know, we're not dogmatic about anything except that you take action. I think the threads that you're tying will be really invaluable as this message continues into the future. Question number three, your favorite life hack. A hundred percent credit to Brad here. Brad got me into travel hacking and I absolutely love it. But uh, one thing I don't think comes up enough is that my family and I have discovered the joy of taking staycations with local friends. So we, we use our points. We rent out hotel rooms within, say, an hour of our house that have a pool, a hot tub, free breakfast. We go there. We stay overnight. Our kids have a blast swimming in the pool. We visit the local city. It's cheap. It's easy. And it is fun. 
That's really, really cool. And that actually sounds somewhat like my spring break trip that's upcoming. We very purposefully got hotels that had nice heated indoor pools. Because as I've talked about ad nauseum on this uh, podcast, <laughs> that's like a, a big thing for us. And you can often get, especially if you're not in a major cosmopolitan city and you're willing to travel, like you said, like within an hour, which is perfectly reasonable, you can find lower level redemptions like a category one Starwood hotel for 3000 points or a category one Hyatt for 5,000. And, and those often have those are the Hyatt House and Hyatt Places that have free breakfast. So, yeah, I mean, that that's a really cool idea. I like that, Brian. And I, and I will tell you, Brad, my kids and my family look forward to those weekend vacations just as much as we do the expensive ones where you travel far. And that in itself is a wonderful feeling. So, yeah, local staycations at hotels. Invite your friends. Go swimming with kids. Awesome. That is a huge life hack. I'm adding it to the lexicon for sure. All right, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. I'm not going to cheat and say buying a stock that went down or anything like that. So I'll go with fresh out of college. I bought a condo up in the Boston area in 2006. I was in a rush to stop renting because that was when I was in my rich dad, poor dad, real estate is great mode. Turns out I, ha I was forced to move about 18 months later and I was carrying a mortgage and paying rent somewhere else and getting rid of it was just a huge hassle. So buying a condo or house before I was ready. I think Brad has a failed real estate story as well. <laughs> yep. Right around that same time as well. So yeah. So, all right, Brian, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. I'm going to skip the financial advice here and say, put way more effort into connecting with your local community. I never really connected with, uh, with local community in the ways that I do today. And I can say your life is so much better. It's so much easier to make friends and stuff when you just do things and you make an effort to, to, to connect within your local community. Volunteer for school, volunteer for soccer coaching, go to high school football games, just get out and meet people that live near you. Yeah, I think there's something there that, that really does need to be explored. We've almost gotten to the place in life where you're so self-sufficient that you don't need to rely on anybody, which what follows is that you don't connect with anybody, right? That, that's exactly right. It's when your interests are money and investing, it's very easy to become a homebody and to kind of ignore the, the community that, let's face it, you don't have nearly as much interest with as you do with the people that are passionate about fire. But I can say life is so much better when, when you engage with uh, the people that live nearby. All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you. Much of our show is fixated around spending less or spending things that bring value to your life. But the reality is all of us do purchase stuff from time to time. And so the bonus question is your favorite purchase made on amazon.com last year. I'm going to cheat. I got to say two things. I can't just pick one. So first I bought an HD TV antenna that goes in my attic. We just had a cheap one before, and we get now we get all the local channels for free, and the reception is excellent. That was definitely a $60, very well spent. But uh, more important, I just bought my son a couple of Nintendo 64 controllers that have a USB connection in them and hooked them up to my iMac, and now me and my son play Nintendo 64 games, Super Nintendo games, Nintendo, Sega, all that stuff for free right on my computer. It is so much fun and so cheap. Uh, GoldenEye and Star Fox, right? You got it. <laughs> that was great. Hey, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Wow, Brad, talk about a framework-shifting Talk about a framework shifting podcast. I guarantee you somebody listening to this just got whiplash. Huh. I guess so. If you just do that quick take, but when you really stop and both of us said this throughout the interview, which is we always looked at it as either or. And I think our answer of index funds was correct under that assumption. But Brian really brought up a lot of compelling points that this is not about just looking at how the money managers handle investing and, and what your results will be if you invest in X mutual fund or, you know, hedge fund or something like that. It's okay. I'm going to take all the advantages of my fine mindset, my long-term thinking, my ability to control my purchases, my sales, my tax liability, all these things and apply that and buy individual stocks. So 
I'm not sure if I'm going to go out and do this tomorrow. I'm not sure that you're going to go out and do it tomorrow, but, but at least it's made us think differently. And I think that is the crucial, crucial point. Because you don't know what you don't know until you do. All right, my friends, this has been a lot of fun. Can't wait to catch up on Friday. The fire is spreading. Can't wait to catch up on Friday. If you're enjoying the podcast, take one second, press the subscribe button. It lets the platforms know you want to be here when we produce additional content. And if you want to support Choose FI directly, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.